we've learned anything from these past couple of years, my fellow Americans, is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in healthcare-related fields to keep you a beat ahead. PJ O'Rourke said, if you think healthcare is expensive now, just wait till it's free. I'm Dr. Marilyn Singleton, and welcome to America Out Loud Pulse. A few years ago, Jimmy McMillan ran for mayor of New York with a slogan, the rent is too damn high. Well, we've been saying the same thing about the cost of medical care for years. Presidents change, the congressional majorities change, but nothing truly useful gets done. Oh, you say, well, we had the Affordable Care Act. Some more people got a path to having a health insurance policy in their file cabinet, but their out-of-pocket expenses remained high and the national total expenditures for medical care continued to rise. Yes, the system is expensive and it's way too complicated. There's so many permutations and combinations of deductibles and benefits and co-pays that the average Joe or Jane wouldn't know which insurance policy to choose anyway. I mean, listen to these ads on television now that it's open enrollment time. How would anybody know what to pick? Fortunately for lots of people, their employer is the person who has to deal with selecting a policy. Unfortunately, having health care tied to employment leaves you one layoff away from having a doctor. Additionally, insurers' attempts to save money might even cost the system more. They deny a more expensive medicine for a cheaper one that doesn't work as well, and the patient stays sick longer, and so the system has more expenses in the famous long run. Whatever happened to an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, and simple things are simple. Insurers routinely don't include many preventive strategies, over-the-counter remedies, and home care. But does government take over the answer? Doubtful. Improving the system will take looking at not only the theoretical, but the practical by talking with healthcare professionals and patients who are paying the bills and doing the work. My guest and I will discuss what's going on in Washington, D.C. on the healthcare front, what some policymakers are thinking of doing for solutions. Grace Marie Turner is the president of the Galen Institute, a nonprofit research organization focusing on achieving affordable health coverage and care for all Americans, especially the most vulnerable. She's the founder of the Health Policy Consensus Group, and this is where analysts from market-oriented think tanks around the country get together to develop policy recommendations. Ms. Turner has served as a member of the Advisory Board of the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality and as an appointee to the Medicaid Commission and as a congressional appointee to the Long-Term Care Commission. Welcome to the show, Grace Marie Turner. 
Dr. Singleton, it's always such a pleasure to be with you. And thank you so much for your work in so many ways on behalf of patients. Well, thank you. We need people who are smart like you, who you know Washington, you've been in Washington, and we're going to talk about the law, what's going on. So we have a new Speaker of the House. What do we know about his interest in healthcare? Because we certainly know people are interested, but what about the Speaker? Well, it's very interesting. Um, certainly, Speaker Mike Johnson, who wasn't on very many people's radar screens, but we actually had worked with him two years after he was elected to Congress. He was elected by his colleagues to serve as the chair of the Republican Study Committee. This is the biggest Republican caucus um, in in Congress, and and it is the one that sets the policy agenda for for initiatives that members want to bring forward in in the House of Representatives. So he's really a policy wonk. And certainly most of the the coverage of his health policy positions has focused on his evangelical evangelical advocacy for pro-life, pro-family, and religious liberty principles. And all those are really important. But he's also really a policy wonk. And he got down into the, the details. And he and his colleagues developed a 57-page framework for personalized, affordable care. And it's easy to find on, um, on the Republican Study Committee website. I wrote a column about it um, that I know you saw, Dr. Singleton. So it's available on the Galen Institute website. So people can just go to galen.org to read more about this. But it's really in sync with a a lot of the work that we have done through our health policy consensus group that you mentioned. We have well over 100 signatories to a plan we spent many, many months working on to basically provide affordable coverage choices for people in their coverage, a system that responds to doctors and patients rather than bureaucracies and regulations. And many of the proposals that we that we offered are also in Speaker Johnson's framework for personalized affordable care. So I'm really optimistic that that we will have a revival of health policy initiatives you know, is President Biden going to sign it? I doubt it. But certainly it puts sets a new agenda for really trying to get some initiatives through that can address those issues that you were talking about. The incredibly high cost of health care, the incredible high deductibles, the, the limited networks that people are having to, to deal with for these expensive policies. We have to fix this. The American people need it. And we now have a speaker, I think, who gets it. Well, okay, maybe he gets it. Now, we all remember Nancy Pelosi, and she ruled the roost, and she had all her little chicks voting the same way. Uh, What does it matter that he has good ideas if these folks won't vote for it? What Do you you think he's strong in that regard? I do, because, because the Republican Study Committee... Is, has well over a hundred, maybe 150 members. I don't know how many there were when he was, when he was. So he already understands that, and this was 
released by the committee. So that means that all the members signed off on it. Yes, not everybody got everything they want and not everybody loves everything in it, but but they all endorsed it and this was released. So he knows how to build consensus coalitions and he's already done it. They already have this framework, which is really, I think, they, they wrote it in 2019, and so that was after Republicans had lost their, lost their majority. So they knew this isn't going to be legislation. This is basically saying, these this is the direction we want health policy to go. And here are many specific recommendations of things we would do if we were back in power. So they've, they've it's just really quite remarkable that they've done a lot of the spade work to begin to toil the soil so that when and if they have a majority in both houses, houses and a president who would sign it, they've done a lot of the work to be actually able to, to, to get legislation through. And he's done the work of consensus building. Well, that is so good to hear. Can you just go through a little bit what the process after somebody has these ideas, what happens? How, you know, as you call it, what's the little civics 101 on how these bills get through? Well, it's actually, it's Speaker McCarthy created a really good process, what he called the healthy, the healthy futures task forces. And he basically assigned members to, from all jurisdictions, because one of the things that happens is that you get battles between the Ways and Means Committee, the Industry and Commerce Committee, the Education and Labor Committee, committees that have jurisdiction over some aspect of healthcare, and they start to fight each other on our side which is not helpful. And so he said, you're going to work together and come up with ideas. And so they have put together not only the ideas, but also the process of working across committee lines to be able to come up with these processes. And several of these bills have actually already passed the House. And one of the things that's happening, and it's very encouraging to me, is that individual members have individual bills. So some of these bills may have 29 different bills amalgamated into them, the choices and what do they call it? The, the choice and access bill or the patient's, the patient's rights bill, that they have like multiple bills that each individual member has a piece of and they're fighting for that. They, you know, they they can say that yes, I have legislation that I sponsored that got through the House of Representatives. Some of these actually have bipartisan support and may, if we are able to focus on health policy, be able to get the support in the Senate. So there they you first have to go through the committee process. First, you have to have the ideas, and that's really the hardest part. Then you go through the committee process. The committee holds hearings, and, and they have held numerous hearings in these various committees I just mentioned this year on, on health policy issues. Then they have to come to the floor for a vote, and then go back over to the Senate side to see if they can get this through. So I, there, there a lot of work has to be done to sort of create the product, then you have to have ownership of the product. It has to get through the processes of committee hearings, committee votes, sending it to the floor, passed by the by the whole house, and then sent over to the Senate for action. And that's where 
the member advocacy is so important because these members want to fight for their bill. It may be a relatively small piece, something that's important, for example, like allowing us expanding and improving health savings accounts might be one example. Another one what that would provide stronger, um, a stronger support for portability for health insurance, others expanding access to direct primary care, telehealth, health sharing ministries, association health plans, all of those could be individual bills that members want to fight for. So they're going to call their friends in the Senate. They're going to talk about this at town halls and hopefully get some media coverage of of this as well so that they can begin to get the support they need to have this become law. You're right. So, So Nancy Pelosi is absolutely Absolutely a strong arm. You know, she carries that gigantic gavel for a reason because she's going to hit people over the head with it if they don't um, if they don't vote her way. But that's not the way the Republicans are are developing the process. They want individual members to have ownership of specific issues. It's a collaborative pop process. And I think it's actually creating a much better product in the long run because there's a lot more input to make sure they get this right. Well, when speaking of input, will it matter if the constituents get in touch with their folks? I mean, sometimes we feel so helpless. Do you really think they listen to us? Like if said they come out with something, if we write an email or contact them, does it, does it help? Absolutely, it does. Now, they if things are just kind of a formula, like somebody's just cut and pasted a postcard, you know, or whatever, they they put those kind of in one stack. But hearing from individual constituents, especially physicians and especially medical professions, they respect they respect you and they want to hear from you. So attending a town hall meeting, asking to meet with a member while they're in their home office, asking them to speak to one of your groups. There are so many ways that you can connect with members. They want to hear from you. They want to be able to take your stories back to their colleagues. I had one physician who talked to me about he wanted to take Medicaid. He really did. And he tried to take as many Medicaid patients as he could. But he said, you know, I did all this paperwork. I took care of this patient. It normally would have been about a $750 bill. When I got the check from Medicaid, it was for six cents. Tell me how I can continue to take very many Medicaid patients. Those are the kinds of stories that members need to hear. And they're not going to hear them unless constituents talk with them. And especially people in the medical profession, physicians and others. Well, and if you think, my dear audience, that Miss Turner's example was uh, made up, believe me, it's not. I did an anesthetic for a major vascular surgery, which took several hours, and I got a check for about $12. So this is... <laughs> These things are real. Obviously, medicine isn't all about money, but as they say, time is money. And doctors, especially these primary care folks, want to spend time with the patient. They want to help the patient work with them and deal with their social determinants of health, which takes time. Yet, when the reimbursement from the government is so low, a person couldn't keep a practice open in that sort of situation. 
When we get back from the break, I'd like to talk about um, what's happened with this new drug bill where Medicare can now negotiate these 10 drugs. We'll talk about the 10 drugs, how they came up with that, and uh, learn a little more about this because some people are looking at this as a step forward. Others are looking at it as a step back. So we'll get into that after the break. Right now, I will talk about a medicine that's a good one, Cofix RX. This is a nasal spray that's perfect timing. Cold and flu season is here. If you can tell by the name, it was kind of invented during COVID because it's a combination of iodine, xylitol, both of which fight viruses really well. And most of these respiratory infections we get come through the nose. So what could be better? Use a nasal spray, kind of squirt it up the nose, nips those viruses in the bud before they have a chance to go farther down the respiratory tract. I've been using it since it came out a few years ago, and I always keep some in the medicine cabinet like to use it if I've been out with a bunch of people I don't know, and just to be on the safe side. Cofix RX was invented in the USA, and it's manufactured in the USA. So what could be better than that? So check it out. We've got a little Cofix button on our page. Read of all about it. It's right for me. Hopefully, it will be right for you. How can you improve your odds of staying healthy? The answer is stay healthy with Cofix RX. Who's got time for a cold, strep, a flu, HRV, RSV, or COVID anyhow? Cofix has some great news. Besides being featured as a top five product in the drugstore news, we completed the protocol that you've heard Dr. McCullough talk about. Cofix RX is already famous for a powerful virus hostile nasal solution, and now we have a throat spray too crush those nasty germs before they become a problem. With known antiviral support ingredients like povidone iodine, xylitol, and vitamin D3, you can feel a little safer. For a limited time, when you add the new Cofix RX throat spray to your order, you'll receive 25% off the entire purchase. Just click the Cofix RX banner on the America Out Loud website or store. Be sure to use promo code OUTLOUD25 at checkout. Don't forget, OUTLOUD25 at checkout. The Natural Colon Cleanse. It's the ultimate digestive tune-up with Oxy Powder. It's crafted to alleviate the discomfort of gas, bloating, and occasional constipation. There's a reason why Oxy Powder is our number one seller. It worked. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get 15% off using the code OUTLOUD. Global healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, and sleep deep. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order, risk-free. Love it or your money back, guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Out loud. Before the break, I uh, indicated that I wanted to talk about this new drug policy 
that just passed and was signed by President Biden that uh, Medicare can negotiate drug prices. What is that all about? Oh, my goodness. I think it's, the Wall Street Journal has an editorial today uh, called How Biden's Inflation Reduction Act Killed a Cancer Study. And the journal says, and I have to agree with them, that they think is the single most destructive piece of legislation passed uh, under the Biden administration. It is it is just shocking that we would take a vibrant in industry with hundreds, probably thousands of of treatment protocols on the research table and just really put a stake through the heart. It's absolutely incredible that if it's not negotiation, the drug companies are basically told by the government, here's the price we're going to offer you for your drug. If they basically say, you know, well, maybe this is a drug that we spent two and a half or $3 billion developing, but we really only think that it's worth a dollar a pill and that's what we're going to pay you take it or leave it. Well, if the company walks away, they are subject to fines that can exceed 1900% of the daily sales cost of, of their, their daily revenue from that drug. One CEO said, this is going to cost me hundreds of millions of dollars in fines if I don't accept the price the government is offering. That is not negotiation. This is mafia tactics, and many of the, the at least seven or eight of the of the pharma, major pharmaceutical companies that are in the crosshairs of this bill are suing because they say it's really a constitutional violation that they it's a taking of their property. They're also told that they're not allowed to tell the public the the price that they're being offered by the government. So that's a speech issue. They're being constrained in their speech. So there are a lot of constitutional problems. But I'll tell you, it worries me because as we know, the Supreme Court, if Congress passes it, they are going to be very differential to them. But it's really, really something. And we, this Wall Street Journal editorial that I mentioned today take, talks about a drug that um, produced by a company called Seagen in Seattle called Padsev that delivers chemotherapy directly to cancer cells and minimizes the collateral damage to non-health to healthy non-cancerous cells. And when it's given in combination with a Merck drug called Keytruda, the combination is a first-line bladder cancer treatment that has eliminated tumor, tumors in patients by 68%. And new studies show that the therapy is cutting mortality by half. But the bad news is that the CEO of CGEN is saying because of the Inflation Reduction Act, he cannot see a path to tell his investors why he should invest another many more hundreds of millions of dollars in doing clinical trials to see if this drug works and could get FDA approval for other cancer treatments. And so this is just going to basically stop in its track, tracks a very promising drug therapy that could save millions of lives. And in fact, I, I wrote about this today in my newsletter and quoted a former White House chief economist, Tom Phillipson from the University of Chicago, who estimates that because of the price control regime and the Inflation Reduction Act, 135 fewer drugs will be brought to the market. 
leading to 332 million lost life years over what would be the life cycle of a drug the next 20 years. So it is absolutely devastating. Yes, patients need lower cost drugs, but do you really want to do it by decimating the pharmaceutical industry that's trying to come up with these cures and basically saying, we are at such risk if we put our investors money on the day on the on the line with the with having no idea what the government's going to say we have to sell our drugs for it's absolutely i think it's absolutely criminal it's just it's one of the worst pieces of legislation after obamacare i think this is the most destructive health bill that's passed in the last in modern times well it's so interesting because you can look at this from the other direction and say, okay, well, Medicare spends, what, about $130 billion on these Part D drugs, and they're spending so much money, so we need to cut down the amount of money Medicare spends. And I think people miss the big picture. It's the the true cost, not how much Medicare spends. And it's a way of looking at the total cost of these drugs. And then people say, well, if you go to Mexico, you can get a cheaper Canada. But these people are are getting their cheaper drugs off the backs of our money that we put into it, our meaning our pharmaceutical companies. And I know everybody loves to hate big pharma. And they have their issues, but they've also invented some pretty amazing drugs. I look at, well, some of the 10 drugs that are out there, Eliquis, Jardian, Sorelto, Farsiga, and Tresto. And Tresto is a heart failure drug, has really changed the face of heart failure. So it's the sort of thing we look at it. Yeah, it costs a lot. It's keeping people with heart failure alive years longer and active years they can go out walking they used to put people in heart failure bed rest and so you can look at these numbers but you can also look at the value that these drugs have given to patients and the pharmaceutical companies can't be punished for coming up with a novel drug that's exactly right two quick things ironically the more patients are helped by a drug, the more likely the drug is going to be selected for these draconian Medicare price controls. So the better the drug is, the more popular, the more life-saving it is, as you as you describe, the more likely it's gonna it's going to have Congress come after it in a way that's going to make it, you know, you'll get this drug, but are you going to get this this 135 other drugs that we don't even know about yet? Apparently not. And I think that it's really, it's just, it's criminal. And what's also going to happen is that a drug may get approval and go through all the clinical trials and be approved in Europe, and we won't have it here. Right now, we Americans are much more likely to get access to newer, to newer and better drugs than Europeans or anybody else in other developed countries. But now, we're going to be the last on the list to be able to get these new drugs because people are, the companies are simply not going to be able to justify to their investors putting their their money at risk to go through this price control march when they can't make a return on the investment. 
And it does take a long time to get the money back. There's no question. And I don't think people realize how much money goes into developing something new. Now, clearly, there's some drugs that are way overpriced. And a lot of people uh, are getting on the whole insulin problem. Insulin has been around for years. But you've got to realize there's different formulations of insulin, and they've improved. And now they have the methods of delivery that have improved. So there's a lot going on in the pharmaceutical industry. But I have to say, maybe they could save a little money if they stop the silly ads on TV. I mean, they might be useful for some patients to become aware of what's out there. But my goodness, I think the ads, some of them are quite misleading. They have people depressed people far too happy, fat people far too happy. Oh, I just said a misnomer. People with obesity far too happy. And um, so I don't know. I there's That's just me. I find problems with these ads. They're- well, I, I agree with you. But also to your point about, you know, yes, Medicare needs to cut back on spending or it's not going to be there for the next generation. But none of the savings from these price controls are going to go into saving Medicare. They were to to spend on on more green initiatives. None of the money is actually going into to help Medicare become more solvent. Well, I'm glad you said that because this brings up a whole nother thing. You were talking about how the different Congress people want to throw what their particular pet law is, and you know, then they make this giant bundled law. And uh, there's there's really something about how they make these laws and and uh, that each law doesn't address one particular thing. And I think that's a problem too. I don't think people realize that these savings, which most normal people would think, oh, if we save money in Part D Medicare, it'll go somewhere in the Medicare program. But it doesn't. It runs off and goes into other things. And that is just not right. That's not right. And also the savings are often fake. You know, they say they're they all the Congressional Budget Office always uh, exaggerates the savings and underestimates the cost of the wreckage that off that these these um, these laws actually create. And one example, if, do we have time for one other quick example? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. So my colleague Brian Blaze, who runs the Paragon Health Institute, did a study about how much the CBO projected that the annual cost of a new pol- covering a new person on Obamacare would have been. This was when it passed. It said that they thought by this time that it would cost taxpayers about $10,500 in subsidies for each new insured person. The real cost is almost $37,000 a year for every new person that's covered under Obamacare that gets a taxpayer subsidy for their coverage. So, I mean, they're, they're so wildly off in both directions. It costs more than they say, and the savings will be less 
than they say. So it's just, you know, it's it's such a game. And yet the Congressional Budget Office is, is a deity in Washington. They can't pass anything unless they have a blessing from the Congressional Budget Office. And the Congressional Budget Office is way too often wildly wrong. Well, I find that study interesting. And one, it points out that there's no free lunch. I think when people hear about these uh, ACA plans that you can sign up for, oh boy, let's sign up for them. And you, you might be eligible for a subsidy. And this the payment for the subsidy comes from somewhere. In fact, it comes from you. It's everybody's tax dollars that pay for the subsidies. It's not like magically the government made the cost of a health insurance policy go down. And that's the part that I think is part of the fooling of the public, because nobody really sits down and says, okay, a health insurance policy does X. It covers you when you're ill. If most policies now cover some preventive services, but not all. And you think, okay, fine. Insurance pools work because you have some healthy people, some sick people, and then all the money's pulled together and then it's doled out. Now, if there's competition in the insurance industry, there'll be a lot of policies with a lot of different uh exceptions, or some people want a stripped down policy, you're a single man, and presumably you're not getting going to have a baby, you don't want obstetric coverage. And these policies that the government puts out cover everything. And we're paying for it. And we're paying for policies that some people don't really want. So people need to see just because the price that you initially pay for that premium is lower, the total cost via your tax dollars and via all these deductibles, et cetera, could be more. A lot more. And I think that you're exactly right. People think, oh, well, my premium only went up by $100. Well, that's because Congress passed a law with a $64 billion more in subsidies and so that you don't have such sticker shock. That doesn't, that means that they're basically continuing to fuel the inflation in health insurance. If people had to pay the full price for these narrow network plans with these ridiculously high deductibles and, and still high premiums, but we're still putting $64 billion a year into this, this program in order to prop it up. At some point you have to say, wait, let's figure out how we can give people the policies they want, like you say, give them more choices, have a real competition, and let people choose and decide because you've got price transparency and you've got coverage transparency. That's not where we are. The whole system is opaque and it's being fueled by more and more billions of dollars from Washington being shoved into the system and the price just keeps going up and up and up. And at some point, I don't know. Do some people going to say, uncle, we'll see. I don't know. Well, when we get back from the break, we are going to talk about some solutions and some things that can help folks out. And uh, and the reason it's important to know, I mean, everybody out there is in a policy wonk 
But when you hear about these uh, new transparency acts or choice acts that are being put out there in the legislature, it might spur you on to go ahead and write your congressperson and say, you need to vote for this, that I know the difference between value and cost and price, that that they're changing the numbers, but they're not really changing what's coming out of your pocket. Like you say, it looks like, oh, wow, my premium's lower, but they get you coming and going. They're going to get you another way. And that the total cost of delivering healthcare has not gone down. I just like to thank everybody for listening to America Out Loud Pulse. As you know, we are always a beat ahead. We have our free apps on Apple, Android, and Alexa, and you can hear Pulse every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern with an encore at 11 and on iHeartRadio at 8 a.m. the next morning. You can listen on our media player from any web browser anywhere in the world. The great part for me is all shows go direct to podcast in 24 hours, and the episodes are on lots of networks, Apple, Spotify, Pandora, TuneIn, Stitcher, and iHeart. So make it easy, bookmark americaoutloud.news forward slash pulse. The lineup, different doctor every day, Marilyn Singleton, me, I'm on on Mondays, Tuesdays with Dr. Jordan Vaughn and Dr. Stuart Tankersley, Wednesdays with Dr. Peter McCulloch, Thursdays with Dr. Peter Bregan and Ginger Ross Bregan, and Fridays we have Dr. Harvey Reich. And if that's not enough, Nurses Out Loud, Monday through Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern. So take a listen. Politics and medicine, sometimes both, sometimes one or the other. Whatever, you will enjoy it. AmericaOutloud.news is beaten to the pulse of our nation. We know when you're angry, troubled, misled, joyful, and thankful. We know you because we are you. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-term effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. Fortunately, Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the wellness company designed their spike support formula with the miracle enzyme natokinase, scientifically studied to dissolve spike protein so you can feel your very best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. I'm so confused. I don't know what to do. I'm afraid of going to the hospital. My doctor tells me nutrition doesn't work. Trust is earned. We are the Energetic Health Institute, and we want to earn your trust. Natural medicine, holistic nutrition, detoxification, fasting, cellular healing, and so much more. Remember, the best way to be free is to be healthy. So stop being a patient and start being a student at energetichealthinstitute.org. 
Before the break, I said we were going to start talking about solutions that we've thrown out some numbers and some complaints and what's wrong with the current system. So let's think about what it is that's needed for reform. How do you get care that puts the patient and the doctor in charge? That um, some of the policies that Ms. Turner has worked on and several of uh, other think tanks have several points, you know, you, that say what are the things that are needed for true healthcare choices for the patient and that will ultimately decrease costs. So go for it, Grace Marie. Oh my goodness. Well, I think the, the first thing to the the framework is that there simply is no appetite right now in Washington or anywhere else for a major overhaul of the health sector. One when the when the repeal and replace effort failed in 2017, there was with John McCain's thumbs down, it was really a tragedy because there were there were a lot of ideas, a lot of good policies and proposals out there. If he would have said yes, it would have meant that the House and the Senate bills would have gone to conference committee. And we really would have been able to provide people with a new a new platform for change. That went by the wayside and and then COVID hit. So, so any real serious health reform initiative has not even been considered for the last five years. Until now, until we see, as I mentioned earlier, this Healthy Futures Task Force process that the House has initiated to really begin to generate new ideas. And we've seen we've seen two one bill that's come to the floor of the house and passed another one that's likely to come that it, that involve many different specific issues. This is not like the big, you know, the big omnibus spending bills. These are bills in which you're really pulling together a lot of ideas, each individually that can make a difference and together can make a pretty big difference. Everything from allowing greater transparency, everything from giving people more choices in and more ability to use their health savings accounts, to put more money in their health savings account and to be able to use them, use that money for more expenditures, um, giving people giving states more freedom and flexibility to be able to use the money that's coming to them already to to do a better job of helping to take care of the people who are high spenders, expensive patients, and to, to provide better care for them and therefore lower prices for others in the market. And we have a lot of evidence that that works. It's a provision in, in, in Obamacare, actually, called Section 1332 that gives states more freedom to use the Obamacare money in ways that better serve their constituents. So that also needs to be, the, the, the Biden administration has basically stopped any waivers that states might apply for that would allow them to have this kind of creativity. So passing legislation would give states legal authority to be able to use that money in more creative ways. Also giving people greater access to 
direct primary care, being able to use their health health savings accounts for direct primary care, primary care, uh, in implementing health um, association health plans. It's they're stuck in the courts right now, but giving small businesses a chance to aggregate and put their to come together to get the same kind of economies of scale that big employers have in purchasing health insurance. As I mentioned, telemedicine, um, giving people more more opportunities to have short-term plans, which actually can become three years or longer plans. People who are between jobs, uh, helping kids who are I'm just getting started in the workforce to make sure they have coverage, often better coverage than Obamacare coverage at a much lower price. So those are just a kind of a, a few of the things that Congress has been considering. Um, looking at states and their um, the, the kinds of things that, that we see with hospital consolidation and purchasing private practices and then charging four times more for the services offered in that private practice that even though it's in exactly the same place with the same physician is now under a hospital umbrella so it can be it be charged more so having what we call site neutral payments would be important so that so that payments are paid based upon the quality and the service not where it's delivered so that's just kind of a, a, a sort of a scattershot of a lot of the ideas, but there are many, many more ideas. We we actually have a website for the Healthcare Choices Plan, healthcarechoices2020.org, and I'll be happy to send people a link to that as well. It's, a, it's on our website at galen.org to with 35 different ideas of things that Congress can do. And a lot of these bills actually include their efforts to do um, to make policy changes on a step-by-step basis to begin to give people more choices, give uh, the market more incentive to compete, more transparency of prices, and, and really mostly putting doctors and patients back in charge of decisions instead of Washington bureaucrats. Well, when you say that, putting doctors and patients back in charge of decisions, that, of course, as a physician, I it makes me cringe when I think of the times that we had our drugs limited because the, the network that was, I'd say, most of the patients had at the particular time didn't want a more expensive muscle relaxant and said, we'll use the older one. And I'm thinking, why do you think a new one came out? Because it was better. It was easier to reverse and it relaxed the muscles quicker. I mean, all these things, the they don't make new drugs for fun. And when we want to use them, it's for a good reason. And contrary to what somebody might see on TV or something, just because a drug rep were to come in the office or come in your doctor's lounge and tout a drug doesn't mean you're going to use it. You're going to go look it up and be glad that there's something new for whatever your specialty happens to be. But it doesn't mean you're going to drop some, oh, gee, 50, 60, 70-year-old drug that you've been using that's still good. And so I think the PR that goes around not changing the system is something we have to start to ignore and can't let patients get sucked in and think that 
that this happened when Hillary Clinton was doing her health care plan, that they started this meme that doctors were money grubbers. And it's like, oh, tell that to the guy who's in the mobile clinic outside of the dollar store that he's a money grubber. You know, it, it was just a way to be able to impose some sort of bureaucratic will, which isn't necessarily good for the patient. I, I, I just go on and on because I think that the quest for more access to care shouldn't include bad care. But that seems to be what, <clears throat> excuse me, the government's willing to settle for. No, I, I really do fear when you tell these stories, Dr. Singleton, that we are sliding towards socialism in our healthcare system with so much of the government controlling the spending and controlling the choices even outside the, the care that it directly pays for. I remember a physician in, in England telling me one time, you know, he, he saw patients both privately as well as, as patients in the National Health Service. And he was an oncologist. And he said, it absolutely pains me that when I see a patient from the National Health Service, I have a very restricted number of drugs that I can use to treat that patient. If they're And I can't even tell them about some of the newer drugs that my private patients will get because they have private supplementary coverage. That's what's happening. Patients don't know the care they're not getting. They don't know that there may be a better drug because big brother, whoever it is, isn't willing to pay for it. That patient should know about their choices and options. They should be able to be more informed about the kind of coverage that they have to help them pay for that coverage if they want it. And to be able to, to not close down the innovation that has really let American medicine be the leader in the planet. More than, About 60% of all drugs on the market today, new drugs, were created in the United States. What's going to happen if we shut down our pharmaceutical research-based industry? We're not going to have those new drugs. And people are going to wind up saying, well, why, is, why isn't there a cure for this cancer? Why isn't there a better treatment? Why, isn't, why aren't there better pain meds? Well, it's because the government basically shut them down. This is criminal, criminal, Dr. Singleton. Well, one of the things that people will argue is that you'll get to the point where even though you make it sound like, oh, this is very equitable and everybody will have access to care, the people with money will still get what they want. If you've got money in your pocket, you can afford to pay for these things out of pocket. What we're striving for, certainly, and what your group and many others like you are striving for, where everybody can get the top-notch care, and you haven't um, put the onus on one group of people to pay for everybody. But and it and it sounds a little um, Pollyanna, but I think it's doable. I mean, because people fear that the people with chronic disease and and rural people, people who don't have uh, transportation, etc., that they still will get the short end of the stick. But what I see 
is putting all these people on Medicaid and your story you told in the beginning where Medicaid is paying the doctor a penny on the dollar, sometimes less, um, the patients aren't going to get good care and there won't be doctors who take Medicaid. Suddenly you'll have all these people on Medicaid but no doctor's going to take it. Then what do they do? So it's an insurance policy that is empty. There's zero inside of it. Well, and even even the most of the richest person in the world is not going to be able to get the drug treatment that was never developed. So I think that when when we have an industry in which people that can pay for these services, then they're available and then they get they get better and they get cheaper if the industry is able to to continue to improve. We've seen it in so many ways. Hepatitis C, for example, the treatments came out wildly expensive, but when competition came in, they became much more affordable and accessible and many more plans now cover them. So having having the ability to produce that innovation for those who can pay for it is important in order for it to be able to be available to average people like me and to people that live in rural America. They're never going to get it if it's not developed. Well, so well said. There's one thing that I just read about just today, in fact, is, um, and this is sort of slightly off topic, but not really, is that medical debt is not going to be put on many Americans' credit reports. So their scores are lifted. And when I read this, I thought, well, isn't this interesting? It's it's almost like what I analogize everything to the cost of college, why it's gone up exponentially because they have student loans. So they keep on raising the tuition so everybody can keep on getting a student loan. Once the student loans are free, then more and more people will get them and the tuition will go higher and higher. And I think it's a wonderful thing to make sure somebody can rent an apartment and whatever that medical debt isn't on their credit report. But wouldn't it be better if there weren't medical debt in the first place? Well, that's true. And also, those, those studies are so flawed, Dr. Singleton. They basically, if any, if a person has any medical debt, $50, they consider that person, they, they put that person in the category of having medical debt. And that's where you get, you know, 50% of Americans have some medical debt. But it's, 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 it's often much less than other debt they have. So is that going to be forgiven too in order to be able to improve their credit scores? So, you know, it's just, it's really, it's a very difficult situation where people think, well, if medical debt is forgiven, then I just won't pay my bills. Well, somebody's going to have to pay them or the physician's going to have to close down their office because they can't keep their doors open when they get checks for six cents, right? Or when the, when people aren't paying their bills. It, it, it puts the frontline doctors and the the marginal rural hospitals absolutely in the worst position to be able to try to do what they want to do, take care of patients, provide good medical care. And in so many ways, the forces of government and payment policies work against them. We've got to get away from this top-down 
government knows best, Washington-directed system to one in which doctors and patients are making decisions. You've got transparency. People have control over the money so they can make their own choices about their care and coverage. And states have a greater ability to provide the kind of care and coverage that they know their citizens want. Washington cannot do this. And it's got to let go of the reins of power if we're ever going to get this system back in back in order. Well, from your lips to God's ears, I want to thank you for all the information you've given us. And I hope it stimulates people to kind of keep their ears open. We all want better health care and there's got to be a way to do it. And it's not just blanket government control. And I patients don't want it. Doctors don't want it. And it seems like the easy way out. But good things don't always come from the easy way out. And we're looking for the best health care for everybody. That's right. And so people can learn more about what we do at the Galen Institute at galen.org at the second century Greek physician, G-A-L-E-N.org. So please, and sign up for my weekly newsletter so you can find out what the hot topic of the week is in Washington. Well, thanks again. Thank you very much. Okay. And hopefully you will come back and visit us again after a few months with the new speaker and we'll see what's going on in Washington. Thank you, Dr. Singleton. And thank you for all you and your colleagues do. I have such great admiration for you and your profession. Oh, you are so welcome. And I'd like to thank Everybody for listening to America Out Loud Pulse, a beat ahead. Now, I urge you to go to our, well, not so new anymore feature, americaoutloud.shop. This is our shopping site where we've got all of the products we talk about, healthy cell products, Cofix RX, and uh, a bookstore that's amazing. It's got the books of the guests as well as other books of interest. And we're so simple here. If you type in the discount code out loud, you'll get various discounts on the products. So give it a visit. I have gotten a few things there and am very pleased. Now, remember, you can also email questions to the host or the guest. First names are fine. You can just fill out the form on the page with the podcast and we'll answer any questions you might have. So thanks again for listening. And whether you agree or have other opinions, please share the show. And until next week, say it loud. I'm free and I'm proud.